0: You probably know our guest today from his 17 years as an Emmy Award winning talk show host. But what you may not know about him is that he began his professional career in the United States Marine Corps. He went on to graduate from the United States Naval Academy where he earned a degree in general engineering and a minor in international security affairs. He also earned a degree from Defense Language Institute in Russian and Mandarin Chinese. While serving in the military for a total of 22 years, Williams was the recipient of two Meritorious Service Medals, two Navy Commendation Medals, two Navy Achievement Medals, and various other military awards and citations. He is a New York Times bestselling author, a passionate advocate for veterans' education and health, and an entrepreneur and philanthropist. He currently serves on the Board of Advisors for the Fisher House Foundation and the Ann Romney Center for Neurological Diseases. Williams has been an outspoken advocate for cannabis law law reform for the past 20 years. He has worked to pass medical cannabis legislation in states such as New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania and Connecticut and continues to advocate for reform he is the host and producer of a a weekly podcast focused on cannabis information and education let's lead by with Montel we've got him please welcome Montel Williams thank you
1: thank you oh yeah no I'm back here I do it. thank you Good afternoon, Florida Medical Conference. Good afternoon, how you doing? First thing I got to say is, in the back of the room, a lot of you come in and sat in the very back. Please, unless you have an ambulatory issue, get up and come up here. These people are not going to bite you. Move up, move up. Why you sit all in the back? Well, first off, thank you so much for the invitation to be here today to talk. I want you all, and I'm really kind of, it's weird that I'm here because I feel like all I'm doing is getting ready to preach to a choir, because this is the choir. The understands why we've all come together. But, you know, most of you know me, like our speaker said, as a talk to host. Now you know that I was in the military. I don't come to you today as a talk to host or as a celebrity. I'm coming to you today as a patient. As a patient who has been involved in cannabis now for 20 years. Longer than it became legal. Thank you. Thank you. Way longer before people decided to jump on the green rush and try to see how much money they can make, I was out in the, out in the, in the hinterland by myself back in 2000, 2001, 2002, begging for people to help me as I moved around this country from state to state to state to state, trying to guarantee patients the right to have a private conversation with their doctor. There's no other medication on this planet. The people feel like they have the right to get themselves in the middle of a conversation with a patient or a doctor, except for when it comes to cannabis. Back in 2001 and 2002, I was left out on the proverbial field by myself. Now, all of a sudden, we got tons of doctors, and I'm glad that the doctors have come to the table. Give them a big round of applause, please. I'm glad that these doctors now all of a sudden, all of a sudden are, what's the new term, woke? Yes. Because 10 years ago, the same ones that are out here trying to make as much money as they can also were not woke. They were the same ones arguing against cannabis. And you can sit there and look in the mirror and lie to yourself. If you want to, go right ahead. But if you went to medical school, you were lying to us now by claiming that you really believe that medical marijuana worked. The fact that you even use the term marijuana shows me that you don't even know that it works you. Because we still are using a term that was a racist term created just for racist information. But instead, now all of a sudden, it's time to make some money. Everybody feels like it's time to get a little cash, make themselves a little wealthier, and you forgot the one thing that's most important. Back in 2000, back in 1999, there were people in California and across this country being dragged out of their homes on medical beds and with IVs locked up just because they were trying to self-medicate. And what have we done? We've done nothing but left the patient on the battlefield. Every war that there is, there's a little red truck that runs around with a red stripe on the top and a cross on the top to keep the missiles from hitting because people are working to help patients. And right now, this industry, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I hope I don't come across that way, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm a little pissed off. Back in 2000, 2001, 2002, I get busted. Nobody stepped up to the plate. Nobody left a patient on the battlefield. And why did I even begin? Why did I even think about cannabis as a methodology or modality for treatment for myself. Well, let me take you a little medical journey with me. And that journey begins with this. That was me. On a gurney at Beth Israel North, back in 1998... When for about a month and a half, two months straight, I had an episode where I was bleeding profusely from my sinuses. I'm going to tell you over the course of a month, month and a half, I bled almost 30 days in a row. Some of those days I would bleed out, bled so much that it made me pass out. I fell through a table one time. Cut myself in several different places with a glass table. And then finally, the doctors decided that I needed to have a major surgery. I had a couple choices. One, they could go right through my face, the outside of my face, go right through into my sinuses and see if they could correct this issue. Or they decided to put me in. I went to a hospital it's called Bethersville North, which is an interventionalist radiology hospital where they literally went up through my artery in my leg, up through my heart, into my brain, outside of my brain, in the brain, into my son's passages, where they did something called tampanada. 17 hours I laid on a gurney being operated on. I remember when I woke up, I couldn't move my arms because they had let my arms lay out this way and my chest was actually strained for two days. But I was blessed. Right before I went through that surgery, that little heart monitor is what I heard myself the night before I went to surgery because they had already packed my sinuses with enough gauze to block the bleeding. And I bled through the bleeding and bled across the gurney that I was on, onto onto my bed. Doctors came in. It took a team of doctors about seven minutes because though my heart stopped, they got it back in 10 seconds. It stopped again. They got it back in 10 seconds. stopped again. They ended up having to adrenalize me just to keep me around when that happened, I remember right before it happened, about two months before I even started bleeding, I started noticing some really weird things. And that's the only way I can explain it to you, weird things, because I should also say that medically, since my graduation from the Naval Academy, and I graduated in 1980, when I graduated, right before I graduated, I was one of 20 soldiers who got an overdose of pre-commissioning immunizations. So I got an overdose, and back then they had locked the three of them together. It was, you know, typhoid, um, I can't remember what the other two were. And I went through the line, and the Naval Academy class of 1980 was the last group of soldiers to receive immunizations by gun, because the person who had used the gun on us had set that gun 30 times higher than it was supposed to be. So I went through, it was diphtheria, typhoid, and another one. I went through and got 30 times the dose of diphtheria that I should have probably gotten. And it immediately sent me to the hospital right before I graduated from the academy. This is after doing four years of vigorous work trying to get a commission to serve my country. The same people I'm trying to serve almost killed me. So I'm the first person in the history of the United States Naval Academy to walk across the stage, receive his diploma, graduate, get to throw my hat in the air, and not be commissioned on that day. The reason why is because they put me in what was called MPQ. I was not physically qualified because I went through a whole battle of neurological disorders that no one could explain and understand. Now, in hindsight, I begin to understand because in hindsight, that was probably my first bout with MS. And no, the shot did not cause me to have MS. I probably have a predisposition, a genetic predisposition to the disease multiple sclerosis that I would have probably somewhere along the way ended up developing. But because I had such a shock to my immune system, I went through the first bout right then. I went almost completely blind in my left eye. I had left side weakness in my body. This lasted for a six-month period of time, and then at the end of six months, it came back. Everything came back. My vision didn't come back completely. I was left with some damage to my left eye, damage enough that the U.S. military didn't want to commission me. So this is in 1980. I literally, back then, there was a congresswoman, Mikulski, who became a senator of Mikulski, who I went to see. And I literally said, damn it, listen to me. Excuse me. I did everything I'm supposed to do. I had listened in the Marine Corps before I went to the Naval Academy. I had busted my butt to graduate from this place. How dare you tell me you're not going to commission me when you're the ones who did this to me? So I fought. I fought and demanded that the U.S. government give me a commission. And I was able to receive one. I received one as a special duty intelligence officer because, contrary to what you heard, I had studied Chinese at the Naval Academy because of my language capability. They decided to commission me as what they call a special duty intelligence officer and sent me off immediately to the Defense Language Institute where I then got a degree in Russian and became, what you want to call it, a little bit of a spy, but I became a cryptologic direct support officer. And because I was supposed to be not physically qualified, I ended up serving more time deployed than most of my peers who were qualified. I have well over close to 300 days under the water and about 350 days on the water, deployed to every single hotspot this country had from the time I graduated until the time I got out. I ran multiple organizations. I spent most of my time at the National Security Agency. I've held the highest clearances that this country has to give out. So, jumping back to 1999, after I had this ridiculous bout with my face, 98, was having my face It's about a year later, and for some reason, that bleed seemed to exacerbate and trigger my MS to begin to act up. And at this point in time, I had not been diagnosed with MS. The US military sent me to every hospital there is to be sent to. from Johns Hopkins, to Walter Reed, to the Wall's Eye Clinic, to UC San Francisco, to Mayo Clinic. No one could diagnose MS, and why? Because back then, different than it is today, Back then, MS was a disease that most doctors learned. You know, this is very interesting, and I get to say it this way. Most doctors learned, back then, bad information. The same way they learned bad information about cannabinoids. And they're still learning bad information today. But back then, MS was a disease that was characterized as only being diagnosed of women, of white Caucasian women of Northern European descent. And, of course, I did not fit that bill. So they said it couldn't be MS. When I graduated from the Naval Academy, I graduated weighing close to 185, almost 190 pounds. I was a power lifter. I was a boxer. I was a brigade boxing champion in my plebe year. And I was walking around. One of those guys used to believe that the more size I took up, the bigger a man I was. And the truth of the matter is I started to realize that the more size I was putting on my body was putting such a strain on my neural system that it started to exacerbate me having exacerbations and aperiodic neurological anomalies that I kept going to a doctor for, and they couldn't diagnose. So after I had this episode of bleeding, it's about a year and a half later, how many of you remember a television show called Touch by an Angel? Remember that show? Touch by an Angel? Della Reese, Roma Downey Jr., right? Hey, the, the, somebody be screwing up something, and that thing. And here comes the angel. Then all of a sudden the light will come down on her and then boom, she domini, domini, bless a person, all of a sudden they okay and they go to heaven. Right? No matter what the problem was, they always go to heaven. I was the only character, I was asked to do a guest starring appearance on that show and I'm the only character on Touch by an Angel that they sent straight to hell. <laughs> and part of the reason why they sent me straight to hell was because I played this character that was a, a cult leader and as this cult leader, you know, my plan for the whole show was I was going to end up getting this whole congregation in this church. And there were some people who were locking putting chains on the door, and they were going to burn the whole place down. And, you know, of course, the angels tried to get me to stop, and I didn't stop. And another person tried to get me to stop, and I didn't stop. And, you know, the angels ended up saving the congregation. But, you know, I had already set the fire, and I'm up in the front burning down like this. And the, the good person went over to Roman Downey and said, shall we save him? And she was like, homeboy bled, I went straight to hell, okay but part of that episode was oh, maybe two or three of the scenes in that episode, I was had to cry like on cue There's was one scene where I'm talking to one of the parishioners and I'm crying about something that happened in life, and you know, I was a, fine, I think I'm a fairly decent actor, but you know, at that point in time I was kind of thinking, how am I going to do this, not even recognizing the fact that for, oh, at least a year, I was suffering from something that was called emotional lability. And emotional lability is something that is a term that they, you know, now have come up with a new medical term for and more drugs for, something called pseudobulbar effect. And they're selling drugs for that these days. And I was suffering from this because I would literally – cry at the drop of a dime. A lot of people who watched the Montel Wim show, especially back in the 80s, were gravitated to me because they said, oh, Montel, such an emotional guy. He's such a really good guy. Did I cried if the wind blew. You know what I mean? And I could walk outside and the breeze would hit me and I would start crying. Or I see a puppy and I'd start crying. And so when I read the script for Touch by an Angel, I realized, no, this isn't going to be that hard to do. I should be able to kind of get to this maybe because I'm crying and I can't understand well, I got on a plane, I'm living in New York at the time. I got on an airplane and took off. It was on a Friday morning, and I had to arrive into Utah where we were shooting this episode. And when I got into Utah, I was supposed to go directly to wardrobe and wardrobe was gonna hook me up and, and get me ready for the episode. We were gonna start shooting on that Monday morning. I got on that airplane and I remember the day before I had done a pretty, pretty serious heavy duty workout. You know, I was at the time, that particular day, I weighed about 220. Um, I weigh 185 right now, but I weighed about 220. And I was benching somewhere around 385 to 390 pounds. I was deadlifting close to 575 pounds. I was squatting about 585 for 10. So I was a real heavy-duty, you know, <laughs> you know, Neanderthal walking in the gyms. And the night before, I got on a plane that Friday morning, I remember, you know, I'd kind of overdone it a little bit. I was doing some leg presses with about 700 pounds on them. And I was pushing really, really, really hard. So when I got on this plane to fly out to Utah, plane took off. And about 10 minutes into the flight, I had lightning bolts, daggers, just blast into my feet, my legs, my lower extremities. I was in so much pain. I literally started crying on the airplane. And I was flying at the time. My ex-wife, I couldn't hold it in at all. I hurt so bad. And I thought, oh, Lord, I must have just hurt my sciatic nerve. I hurt some nerve in my back. Oh, God. I got in, literally had to be helped out of my seat, helped walking through the airport. And just as things go with me, and I think I was blessed as blessed could be, I happened to be staying at the home of a very close friend of mine who was a plastic surgeon. And when I arrived in the limo at his house, and he came out to the car and I got up, I was like, my legs are fire, I'm hurting, my back hurts. And you know, I said, Andy, man, what's going on with me? He said, Well, come on in, I'm gonna hook you up with a doctor tomorrow morning. You get to see a doctor was a Saturday morning. And I mean I cried all night long. But he turned to my now ex-wife and said I'm really concerned because I think Montal has MS. He didn't say it to me. I got up the next morning, really early. A doctor made a special appointment for me. I went in to see a doctor in Utah. It was like, oh, 8.30 in the morning. And he walked in, and after, I will tell you, six minutes, I took off all my clothes. And, of course, he did a pen test and a couple other things. After six minutes, he literally went, hmm, Hmm. I'll be right back. He walked out, comes back in, comes back in carrying a brochure. And he said, I hate to tell you this, Montel, but you know, you have mess. And, you know, I don't know what you're going to do about this, but you know, dude, you got to stop all the things that you're doing. Again, I'm going to tell you, I was 220 at the time, walking around trying to think I was getting ready for a bodybuilding contest. And he basically says, you got to stop what you're doing. Because... In his own words, he said, I literally know this very well. And he's brought you to the right doctor. He was a neurologist. He said he's been studying MS for quite a long time. And unfortunately, he said, when we find African-American males who have this disease, you are the worst category that there is. This is what this man's telling me. I've just met him. First off, he tells me that I have MS. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. I, I couldn't tell you what MS was if it, to save my soul when he said that. I'm looking at the brochure and I still didn't understand it. I didn't even understand what the words meant. MS, multiple sclerosis. I'm thinking, Jesus, I must be one of Jerry's kids. <laughs> MD, entirely different disease. Right? So I'm looking at this and, and, and all I could hear is wop going on in my ear. And this guy is telling me that I need to basically give up, go home and die because there's no help for me. And he had the nerve to say, and unfortunately I remember the last words I heard through that want, 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 was that unfortunately you're gonna be in a wheelchair in probably less than 10 years. Want, 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 but I'll be back. And then he walked out of the room. I really wanted to backsmack him across the room. How dare you say something like that to me when you don't know me? And number two, I don't see a crystal ball And number three, and I'm sorry, I know there are probably some physicians in this room, but hear me right now. Hear me as well as you can. You are not God. If you were God, none of us would be sick. And I don't see anybody giving you a crystal ball when you get your degree that says you're an MD. So prognosticate all you think you want, but every one of us is an individual. And every one of us needs to be treated that way, and that's something you need to pay attention to when it comes to this business especially. We were all individuals. And so what was the first thing the doctor did? He wrote out about seven, eight prescriptions. All of them were some sort of set, some sort of Percocet, Bicocet, Bicodin, Bicodin. He wrote me out things I couldn't even read what they were. Tell me you got to try one or two of these each, and we'll figure out which one helps you best with your neuropathic pain. Let's go back and remember, this is 19... Eighty nine. Okay, back before we even began to think about things called opioid addiction. And you also got to remember, I'm a celebrity. So, you know, unfortunately, I get to doctor shop as much as I want. So though he wrote me a few prescriptions for 60 pills of each one of the types of pills he gave me, I very quickly thought that that gave me the right to call any doctor I knew to get another 50 or 60 pills. Because my pain was so extreme, I couldn't seem to get it to go away. I couldn't find anything that would help it go down. I literally was a walking bundle of nerves. I didn't buy the diagnosis, so I waited two weeks and then I went to Harvard and went to see a top doctor who's considered probably one of the top doctors in the entire United States in the world when it comes to MS. And he then validated the diagnosis. And told me, yes, you have MS. And he was a little bit better than the other guy. I say, no, I shouldn't say a little bit. He was about a hundred times better because he said, this is no reason to give up. You have MS. We're pretty positive that you have what's called remitting relapsing. But for some reason, your episode or bout has caused this neuropathic pain that seems to not want to go away. So. He took out his prescription book and wrote me out another prescription. So for how many doctors in the room, raise your hand. Okay, right, So for all the doctors in the room, you know, I'm sure some of you will remember this when I say it. But I went through back then we didn't have oxycodone. It wasn't out in 1998. You had something called Tawin. Yeah. I just heard a reaction from a doctor. Tawin. Heroin is probably the closest thing to heroin that the pharmaceutical industry has ever created. And at one point in time, I was taking about four or five of those a day, three of them at a time. Sometimes going home at night, I would take three or four and do nothing but drool in the corner. Was I impacting my pain? No. Stay with us.
0: We'll be right back.
1: the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step by step every single week. And I was really literally eating so many of these things that at a point in time I literally was running out so quick I was calling doctors I knew in California, calling doctors I knew in Ohio, doctors I knew in Maryland and each one of them would write me a script. Hell I could go visit someplace in a city and ask to speak to the doctor for the hotel. And the hotel doctor would write me a script because I showed him I had another script. It might cost me a couple bucks, but I still get a script. I finally went back to see my doctor from Harvard. And I'm not going to say his name, but, you know, he said, dude, I heard, what you, I know what you're doing. And i went, like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, you know, I heard from a doctor that you saw in Ohio. And I said, What would you hear? He said, well, you know, he let me know that you had asked him for a script and I'm done with you. I'm not writing anymore. As a matter of fact, I've just taken your name off of my registry. And if you attempt to get a prescription filled based on my prescription, they're going to turn you in to the DA. So you need to back off. And I was like, well, what am I going to do? He said, I don't know. In his exact words were, look, I will tell you this, but I will never admit I said this to you. I heard from some other MS patients like you that have a similar type of pain. that This, you know, marijuana stuff seems to help them. And this is back, this is in 2001. He said to me, and this is stuff that's called mm, some weird kind of marijuana. It's like a CBD, CBCD, CD something. It's some weird marijuana in it that I think really might help you. And he said, CBD. And I was like, hmm. So I said, okay. So I had remembered that before my military experience, and I went 22 years without touching any cannabis whatsoever, but before my military experience, I had dabbled in high school a little bit in cannabis. And I remember, but i never thought of it as a drug that would help someone do anything other than get high. So I went, hmm, CBD. And... Back in 2001, long before Sanjay Gupta made it okay, <laughs> I started hunting down CBD-laden marijuana and realized very quickly what a lot of people in this country don't know number one. I started researching, and I really started researching. I didn't do a peripheral take a look. I started digging into the facts behind cannabis and why cannabis was so important. And back then... We already had data written about the fact that we had discovered something called an endocannabinoid system, that right now, all of a sudden, everybody is jumping up and down, thinking, oh, I got new information. It's not new information. Endocannabinoid system has been written about since 1988. We knew about CBD in 1940. First discovered by Dr. Allen, then replicated in 1946. We started identifying the receptors that actually pick up THC CBD in 1988, 1999. The United States government files for its own patent in 1999. Grants itself a patent in 2002. And all of a sudden, just because some hanyo goes on TV and says CBD, everybody jumps on this craze and don't even know what you're trying to create. And now all of a sudden we got an industry that's out here selling trash. In a lot of cases, some of you know unequivocally that trash is being sold. Yep. And we'll say nothing about it. We got doctors running around here trying as quickly as they can to jump on boards so that they can get a paycheck. Not even giving a damn of what you're creating doesn't work. And then have the audacity to say something like, "Well, as we do more and more research, more and more research, your taxpayer dollars have been paying for research for the last forty-five years." Where is it? Where is it, the I'm glad you did speak out. At any time, throw a question at me. I'm okay with that. But where's research? Not just Israel. We have been funding every single year. There is a budget line in the US budget that funds research at the University of Mississippi. Yes. Right, here. right here in the United States. The Freedom of Information Act gives you the right to go and get that research. Put your hand in the air for somebody who's filed for the research for the University of Mississippi. Put your hand in the air. We got an industry. One, two. Two people. The the cannabis is trash. The research is not. The research is what they've done to validate their bull crap that they give out to people. I know what the product is. Fourteen years ago, I had Irv on my show. I held a kept on my show on the set. If you had watched my show ever, you would have seen a can that was delivered by the US government to Irv himself, once a month, with some of the most garbage laden pot ever created by man. But they did the research. They collaborated in research with Dr. Meshulam, who we also paid. Your taxpayer dollars paid him. I'm one of the first people in the history of his of Israel to go to Israel back in 2010 and interview Dr. Meshulam in his laboratory on camera long before it became vogue. The issue is, and the problem is, how many people have gone back and looked at any of the research that was done from 1946 to 1952? One, two, three. We call ourselves an industry, but we're an industry that's doing more harm to each other, I think, than we're doing good because the battle lines have been drawn. Who wants to get to the the finish line first? Caring less again about the patient. We leave the patient on the battlefield. When I first discovered the benefits of using cannabis myself, which started about 2002 on, and from that point on, I have not gone one day in my life without putting some form of cannabis into my body. Not one day. Thank you, but, you know, I'm what science loves to call an N of one. And, you know, most scientists claim that N of ones are not really the research. Well, that would be true if there weren't about 100,000 N of ones. There are about 100,000 N of ones like me, people who use cannabis every single day. And have figured out what works best for them. But that doesn't mean that I know it all. Believe me, I don't. I'm ready and willing to step up in front of anybody and say, I do not know it all. Yes, yes, I've studied the endocannabinoid system. And I understand that, that we create our own endogenous cannabinoids, you know, anandamide, AG2. Okay, I know that. I understand that they are agonists towards CB1 and CB2 connectors. I know all that data. But at the end of the day, how do I dose myself? How do I find something that works for me that may not work for you, may not work for you, may work for you, but what works for you may not work for me? We're too busy trying to see if we can put something out there that's got even a trace amount of CBD. I look at some of this product in the marketplace, that when you realize that each gel cap has under five milligrams, I feel like somebody should throw those people in jail. All of them. That's just a straight-up lie. And the person creating it knows it's a straight-up lie. If we don't start microdosing people throughout the entire day, because your ability to absorb CBD is limited, but why we don't understand that this is a plant that we have recognized that now Science, depending on who you listen to, if it's out of Israel, if it's out of Canada, if it's out of the United States, we've now identified anywhere from 160 to 300 different cannabinoids and phytocannabinoids. And don't pay attention to the person that we quote the most. Everybody quotes Raphael Mashulam but nobody pays attention to the fact that he said unequivocally that he knows and thinks that no matter what science has done, we will find out that they work in an entourage of fact. Yep. Absolutely. So how can you just create a product that only has CBD in it and doesn't have any terpenes? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. How can you give somebody a product that doesn't have CBG in it when we know that CBG is what the people are calling the God cannabinoid or the stem cell cannabinoid because CBG turns into CBD and THC? <laughs> Why would we create a product and leave that out? Why would we create a product and say that we're trying to relieve pain and give people ease of sleep and not put CBN in it? How come we're not using THCA just because the Fed said that THC is bad? Okay, so why not use THCA? They don't even understand that that won't get you high until you heat it up. But we know that it probably acts as a taxicab or an accelerant in helping the cannabinoids break the cell wall. I see a lot of heads shaking and I thank you for shaking them, but this is the kind of information that we gotta walk out of this room and give to everyone. The biggest problem with this industry right now, and I think it, uh, I it's Judge Barnes, probably said this in his speech if you once saw him, the biggest problem this industry has right now is education. Education, education, education. It's not educating the people who are just manufacturing the people who are trying to sell. It's educating the masses to make them understand that this is part and parcel to human life. Every mammal on the planet, every vertebrate on the planet has an endocannabinoid system. Majority of us in this country don't even, people in this room don't even recognize and understand that we've known this. We've known, forget about what you hear about the fact that it was written in the I Ching and it was written in Chinese medicine and written in pharmacopoeias. This government right here, back in 1590 to 1620, you were not considered American unless you grew hemp. The majority of people who were alive back then ate hemp seed porridge every day. Because someone recognized the fact that hemp seed had more protein in it than any other seed that they could come across back then. We didn't even recognize the fact that our revolutionary army was clothed in hemp. Every single uniform, every sail, every rope, every canvas, every tent, hemp. George Washington, our founding fathers all grew it and enjoyed it. And let's also remember, it was tough times back then, folks. People still wiping their butts with leaves. Or not wiping them at all. We were walking around back then in the later, latter part of the 1500s, early part of 1600s. Everyone drank alcohol. Every bit of water that you drank that they called purified had been distilled slightly so that it had a slight alcohol content in it to kill bacteria. Everybody, babies, we cooked with it. And we ate hemp each day. And this didn't stop in the 1600s. Yeah, we tried to see if we could replace the hemp plant with cotton realized very quickly that cotton would not even come close to hemp, especially when it came to sales and rope. So we continued to grow hemp. It wasn't until, you know, the 1937 Hemp Act, or the Marijuana Tax Act, that Anslinger decided to push forward only because he was backed financially by DuPont and William Randolph Hearst in an attempt to make sure that Petroleum based products and wood could still be harvested in the United States. And the same guy, Anslinger, was a guy who, while he was the head of the prohibitionist movement in stopping alcohol during that entire movement, talked about the fact that marijuana back then, using that term, because that's the term that they used back then, was probably safer and better for people because it wasn't a violent drug as alcohol. That was his argument during Prohibition. When we ended Prohibition and he almost lost his job, he had to find something to go after. So he decided that with the backing and the money, that going after cannabis and associating cannabis with those people and making sure that it was vilified with the use of those people's images, black and Hispanic people, It was a way to continue slavery in a legal way. Because we look back at the fact that since 1937, 80% of all cannabis arrests are black and brown people. And The majority of cannabis arrests that are going on right now are in states that have a very, very high amount of private jails. And those jails need to be stocked so that people can continue to make money. But let's make sure that we stock them with just brown and black people. And we still let that happen. We, the industry, lets that happen. It's going to be... Five years from now, we'll still be sitting in rooms like this trying to figure out what to do next because we're not even recognizing that. You do understand, take a look at what just happened and what's happening in Canada right now. The industry is imploding. And this one here in the United States is going to do the same thing. It's set up to fail. You don't understand. Anybody in this room who doesn't get a grip, Look what Governor Cuomo said three weeks ago. (laughs) This clown had the audacity to put forth a bill that wants to tax medication at 50%. And is about to pass this thing. Going to get it passed. Because again, from the government level on down, nobody believes in this as a medication. They're lying to you when they claim they do. They believe in this as an opportunity to make some money. If they can't make money and can't make it real quick, they don't want a part of it. And they for damn sure don't want a lot of people making a lot of mu- individuals making money off of this. So what do we got to do? We have to hold summits like this. We have to get an industry together like this that for one second, I mean, first off, let me ask a question. How many of you, when I asked you to shake the shoulders of the person in front of you, how many of you knew the person sitting beside you? Well take a second right now. Everybody turn around to the person sitting right beside you, shake a hand and say hello and tell them what your name is. You is that go for you
0: too? Yes. You? And, I'm, a well. I'm
1: a veteran as well. Thank you so I'm my Stacey. Pleasure. All right, good. Look behind you. Say hello to somebody behind you. <laughs> Hold on a minute. (laughs) Hold on a second. As we're saying hello, I hope the intention wasn't just to appease me. The reason why I want you to say hello, and I hope that, you know, tonight in the mixer or before you walk out of this room, just like that gentleman up there just shared a card with me, share a card with someone and understand that this industry is going to have to finally come together we're going to have to come together. And I don't, I don't mean get together. I mean, we're going to have to come together. Start talking about how you might be able to help the guy in the town next to you, help the guy in the town with you. A rising tide does lift all boats, period. If you're a boat out there by yourself, you're going to go wash. You need the help, but we also need not just help, but we need education and advocacy. We need people who are willing to go down to town hall meetings. We need people who are willing to write a letter to the mayor and get 50 letters delivered to his desk. Are you kidding me? you come with us to Tallahassee? Sure, invite me. But what we have to do is we've got to figure out a way to understand. This industry is at a place right now where we're like the Wright brothers pushing a wooden, wooden plane down a hill. Jets haven't even been thought of. We're still that wooden airplane rolling down the hill, guys. You got another 20, 30 years ahead of you to make a lot of money. I have no problem with people making money. Yes, come on, go for it but let's do it the right way. You're right. If you do it and keep patience in mind, I guarantee you the weed will above the chaff, no question. But the fact that you've kept the patient in mind will be the driving force behind your remuneration. And God helps those who help the least of us. No matter what religion you are, that's a tenet of almost every single religion. Now, i tell you a little bit about my medical history and my journey with MS. I will tell you unequivocally, for me, again, as an end of one, this is me talking. I would not be walking here with you today were it not for my cannabis use. There's no question. I think, with the Fed itself identified, and again, and everyone in this room should be steeped in, and have on your phone, in your notes, you should all have the U.S. patent on CBD at the touch of a finger. 1985. I give you the number. Yeah, it's six six zero three five zero seven. Thank you. So, look up US Patent 6603507. And actually, when you look that up, look up the abstract. And in the abstract, which is on the front page of a patent application, it will tell you exactly what the US government believes it does. Yeah. And the US government stated unequivocally that it is a neural It neurogenesis. Correct, creates neurogenesis. It, that's, that's not me talking, that's, okay. that's the United States of America talking. That's them saying it and understand something. Again, I'm going to come back and tell you why we need to get together. Do not think for one second that there wasn't a reason why they patented this back in 1988. Every person in this room right now who is selling a CBD product, you are infringing on another company's patent. And any second they want to come down on the top of your head and tell you to stop, The U.S. government can do so and you're in violation of the law, not some drug law in a violation of interstate commerce law. So what are they trying to do? Need to make sure that we have an audience that's ready for and willing to consume a product that we sell and we control. So after you've now wet the appetite of consumers and gotten them to want to be able to buy CBD, all the government has to come in and do is say, your product is illegal. Stop selling it today. As a matter of fact, I've got Uncle Sam's version that I licensed to so-and-so that's giving me 30% off the top. <laughs> and act like they won't do that. And act like the fact that right now, why is it that there are just certain companies that are being given and granted access to that government license? Isn't that interesting? A lot of you in this room, if not, anybody in this room got access to the right to use the government license? You in the back? Are we coming to kick your ass? No, sorry. (laughs) But there's only one out of this entire room. So again, it's all about stopping for a second and recognizing that we need to take the patient off the battlefield. So my life with MS has been made a million times easier, a million times better with the fact that I've used cannabis, but it didn't just stop with my life with MS. 18 months ago, now almost 19 months ago, I had a major, major hemorrhagic stroke. The type of hemorrhagic stroke that normally kills fifty percent of the people who have it. I spent the entire month of June, of nineteen sorry, twenty eighteen, in the hospital, at New York Presbyterian. For the first four days, almost paralyzed from the neck down. On day five, I told the doctors in that hospital, "Listen to me, whether you agree with it or not." I have a product that I created myself, and I make myself, and it's a CBD product. I'm taking it, starting right now. When I got the ability to move my arms back, I started immediately infusing myself in the hospital. I spent the entire month in June. Day five, I started taking my CBD product again. But there's not a doctor in this country. Of course, there are people who have the type of hemorrhagic stroke that I have, not the severity of hemorrhagic stroke that I have. I had a class four bleed. There are some people who have this same type of stroke that spontaneously remit. A few. The first four days I was in the hospital, these doctors were trying to figure out how to tell my wife I wasn't going to be leaving. Day six, they were trying to figure out how they could keep me. I started retaking my CBD myself and I upped my dosage. And I continued to up that dose the entire time I was in the hospital, was released. It took me 30 days of rehab, but I'm back. And I have recovered now 99.9%. Thank you. Thank you. Some things changed though. It's very, very weird. And I still have not found a neurologist who is able to understand and explain this. And I'm seeing some of the best in the country that that stroke kind of clicked off some of my pain receptors. So almost immediately, my pain remitted in my legs by about 95%. Prior to my stroke, I was consuming somewhere, and I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you, I'm not exaggerating. I was consuming at least 150 milligrams of CBD a day and close to 300 to 500 milligrams of THC every day. My consumption now of THC and CBD is a 10th of that. But I will continue to consume until the last day and the last breath of my life because I recognize what it's doing for my body. So, I wanted to just, I could have stood up here and tried to give you information that you've been getting by the droves all day long about data and about science and about things that we all need to know. But I'm gonna tell you, if you are not on a daily basis, trying to read one of the 15,000 articles that are published right now on cannabis, somewhere in the world, you're not, you're in this industry, you're not trying to read at least one or two new ones a day that you haven't read, even if it has some of the same information that you think you already know. If you're not doing that, get out. Quit now, really quit. If you're not trying to figure out and keep up with the fact that there's now 160 cannabinoids that have been identified and what some of those are, get out. You're not in this because you want to be here. Stop. Stop kidding yourself. You're wasting your time. The most important thing that we can do, the most important thing that this industry can do right now is to educate itself. Then educate its potential constituent. Demographic. The only reason why cannabis has been approved in several states, I think people need to stop and recognize, it's been the baby boomers who have finally reached an age that remember that they were smoking under the bleachers in high school. And their lives didn't fall apart. Yet everybody is trying their best to figure out how quickly they can create the highest THC-laden product that most baby boomers don't want. (laughs) trying to create the highest THC product for our animal friends that they don't need. Because we know for a fact that they react to THC differently than we do. It's not the product that mama takes that you give to your baby. Why is it the product that the pet parent takes thinks that that's the product that's going to work best for your pet? We need the research. We need the research to be done. But we also need to go after and understand what I call, I think, is going to be probably for this industry the easiest demographic to move in the right direction. Cannabis has been a geriatric drug in Israel now for over 10 years. You're at the age of 70, you can go down to several hospitals, give them your ID, and at age 70, they give you an ounce of marijuana. Because they recognize very quickly that by providing cannabis to patients, patients were coming off of medications, medications that they couldn't get, medications that were way too expensive. Now I'll tell you, when I walked out of that hospital, I walked out of the hospital on 11 medications. I'm now down to six. And all of the doses have been cut in half or half. And I will eventually, hopefully, be able to get off of all of them. And I'm going to tell you that I believe unequivocally that it's been cannabis that's been able to help me do that. We live in a time when America is probably the most divided it's been since the Civil War. We live at a time when we have more hateful vitriol coming at us from every direction that you can see it coming from. If there were a time that America ever needed cannabis. (laughs) The time is right now. Yes. I agree that because the scientific community and the medical community in this country only understands one thing, and that is money, and they only understand the power that they gain by claiming that they have to have clinical trials done in an XYZ way, and I'm involved in a medical device startup company that's already deployed $100 million, and still we've gotten FDA approval in other countries and aren't, don't have it here in the United States, So I understand this battle, because trials cost money, people get paid, so that's the only thing that this industry seems to want to respond to. So if collectively we have to get together and say that every organization in this room is ready to put in 2% of their gross profit into a fund to sponsor clinical trials, then damn it, it's time to do so. Yeah. And if the collective does the research, the collective owns the research, then all of you get to use it and share it and then allow the wheat to rise above the chaff. That's something that we have to do as an industry, guys. If not, I'm going to tell you, when I come back into this conference in five years, there's only going to be about 20 people here. Because the rest of you will have given up. Because you've bounced against brick walls so hard that it's thrown you out of the game. The way we win this, the only way we win this, is if we decide to put a red cross on the top of our heads and help get the patients off the battlefield. Thank you.
0: Podcasts. Mm-hmm.